Welcome to Talking History, a series of talks from the Farnham U3A World History Group. The views expressed in this talk are representative of the views held at the time of the material being discussed. They do not necessarily represent the views of the speaker, the Farnham U3A World History Group, nor the team at the Mr. T Podcast Studio. In this talk, Pam Taylor tells us about the fascinating history of Farnham Park. I'm sorry, it's not going to be the unknown history of Farnham Park because the Farnham and District Museum Society did publish a book by Pat Heather, which we published together with Waverley Borough Council, giving the history of Farnham Park. And I must say that I actually did take quite a lot of the actual historical details from that book. So forgive me for that. But the origins of the talk were for another group, and I wanted to show people what an important part of Farnham Farnham Park has always been. So if we start with the history, the word park is thought to have come from the Saxon pier through the word pierrock, meaning paddock. Hunting of native red and roe deer had been carried out for years, but forest laws were established in 1014 under King Canute. The forest laws reserved large areas of the country for hunting, including red deer, by the nobility. So we think of examples like Windsor Forest in this area, the Alice Holt and Woolmer. They all came under forest law. The hunting of red and roe deer was mostly carried out on horseback over large areas. After 1066, Norman royalty gained new privileges, allowing further large tracts of land for hunting usually without enclosing barriers. These areas were difficult to manage until the introduction of fallow deer, which could be kept within boundaries, unlike native roe and red deer. And this led to the creation of park pales surrounding smaller areas of land. So in 1086, in the Doomsday Book, there were 35 of these smaller enclosed parks. By 1300, however, so a couple of centuries later, there were 3,200, so almost 100 times as many. And they covered nearly 2% of the land of England. And parking was usually carried out by high-ranking subjects. The kings still hunted over their large royal parks on horseback. By 1400, the bishops of Winchester had a dozen parks a dozen parks in Hampshire, all licensed from the king. Parks could be a thousand acres and were surrounded by an internal six foot ditch with an external bank topped with a fence or pail of total height more than 10 feet. There were gates at intervals. The deer could obviously get in, but deer could not get out. That meant that they preserved the deer that they wanted inside the deer pail. The land that was difficult to cultivate was used at first, but later parks may have used more valuable land. They were much valued for prestige and leisure, and also for supplying high quality food. There was therefore careful management of parks, streams were dammed for fish and wildfowl, warrens constructed for rabbits, there was grazing of other livestock within the park and coppicing of trees. 
In winter, the nobility engaged in hawking, the mark of a true gentleman. As the rural feudal system began to break down due to a series of famines and outbreaks of plague, for example, the Black Death, parks began to disappear and reverted to farm and woodland. The improvement in the economy in the late 15th century led to new empowerment. The Tudors and Stuarts loved hunting, but the Civil War again led to neglect of the parks. Many survive as designed landscapes attached to grand country houses, but many more have disappeared into the countryside or under towns. Farnham is lucky in the preservation of the park, mainly due to the bishops, later making Farnham Castle their main non-metropolitan residence. So I wonder how many of you know where Guildford Park was. There was a royal park at Guildford and also a royal park at Odium. Let us now turn to Farnham's hunting parks. Note the plural. So if we first start with the Sea of Winchester. In 685 to 7, the land whose name is Farnham, with its fields, woods, meadows, pastures, fisheries, rivers and springs, was given by Cedwalla, king of the Saxons, for the construction of a monastery. The site of this is unknown, or whether it was ever actually built. By the 9th century, the lands in the hands of the bishops of Winchester in the Farnham area stretched from Tongham in the east to Chert in the south and to the county boundary in the west. The Diocese of Winchester included Surrey, Hampshire and the Isle of Wight. It was extremely wealthy, in fact the wealthiest diocese in the country. Bishops were royal nominees, often relatives or close allies shall we say cronies. They were very influential, often acting as Lord Chancellor. The last statesman bishop was Stephen Gardiner, made more famous today by Hilary Mantel. She portrays him as a bigoted supporter of the status quo and the Pope, although as she managed to make Thomas Cromwell a sympathetic character, she may have a less than flattering view of Gardiner's machinations. Gardiner was bishop under Henry VIII, but as a loyal Catholic was set aside by the Protestant Edward VI. During this time, he was prevailed upon by the Vicar of Farnham to preach a sermon, urging compliance with the dictates of Edward to remove statues, etc., a ruling that the people did comply with. Gardiner was reinstated as bishop under the Catholic Queen Mary. He is said to have had a delicate constitution and favoured Farnham's clean air and the south aspect of his rooms in Waynefleet's Tower. He relied on the medicinal cordinals of the wife of one of Farnham's bailiffs. She was a stout Protestant, and it is said that Gardiner protected her when Mary took the throne. Perhaps he was safeguarding his cordial supply. Our own bishop, Chris Hilbert, takes a much more holistic view of Bishop Gardiner's actions in his book, The Reformation and Its Effects in Farnham. Although whether having one of the important actors in church struggles was a good thing for Farnham is debatable. After the Reformation, bishops were mostly high churchmen and academics, not politicians. The Episcopal estate accounts were recorded in the pipe rolls, begun in 1208, which continued for five centuries. Written on scrolls of vellum, they contained accounts for the upkeep of the castle and the park. This is how we have such a wide body of knowledge about the Farnham area, and makes Farnham one of the best documented towns of this time. 
Farnham was considered as a good staging post between Winchester and London. The bishop stayed often, entertaining guests with food and hunting in the park. Later bishops lived in the castle full time. So let us turn to the first of the Farnham's parks, and that is the Great Park. This was not the park we know today. The Great Park was already established by the early 13th century, when the pipe rolls began. It was looked after by its keeper, John Le Parker, a man of substance. In 1278, it was stated that the bishop had the right to have a park, warren, fair and market at Farnham and that the king had no jurisdiction there. So the Great Park, the road up north from the castle, follows the line, the outer line, the east line of the Great Park. The west line, originally it was the county boundary. The Claypit Wood, the bishops one time licensed Farnham potters to take the white clay that came from the wood. The park covered 700 acres. It was bounded on the west by the county boundary with Hampshire. The men of Farnham and Crondall were responsible for the upkeep of certain lengths of the park pale as part of their services to the bishop, their overlord. The park yielded venison, highly prized as gifts, also wood, bark, clay, pannage of acorns and beech mast and grazing. The good hunting provided by the park attracted royal visitors. King John came often as a guest of his great ally, Bishop Peter de Roche. The accounts show that the cost of entertainment of both human and equine guests sometimes rather ruefully, as it did cost a lot of money. Henry III, Edward I and III also visited to hunt. The park certainly wasn't big enough, so the bishop decided to expand it. As was said before, the 14th century did not start well. Famines and plagues hit the population hard. The bishops had large holdings and were to a great extent immune from the problems and continued improving both the castle and park. It was decided in 1369 to expand the park by adding 300 acres, which the bishop acquired from the monks of St. Swithens at Winchester. These were in Crondall, across the border in Hampshire. The new lands were a mixture of pasture and woodland from which he could expect an income. The new land was described as Le Monilond in the pipe rolls. Work was carried out to the tune of 53 shillings, eight and a half pence, being for ditch digging, posts, etc. So now we move to the little park. Some people are never satisfied, however, in the rolls of 1372 to 3, the park is called the Great Park. In the following year, the name New Park appears for the first time. William Wickham, the bishop, must have realised if he went out of his postern gate at the side of his castle, there was a large area of land, most of it his. Some of this was domain land and had come into his hands during the plague years. He embarked as far as he could to the east, meeting the land of John de Hale, and those of the common grazing lands of Badshot, Hale and Runfold. Protection was vital. The manorial system was breaking down after the series of plagues. Poaching became widespread. The bishop used his ultimate weapon. In 1374, he issued his greater excommunication against the scoundrels. 
I quote, certain sons of perdition who by night as well as day with their machines, nets, snares, dogs, bows, arrows, and other mysteries framed for the catching of rabbits have taken, abstracted, caught, carried off, and consumed to the greater peril of their souls and other wild beasts out of uh, the bishop's parks, chases, warrens, and woods at Crondall and Farnham. That'll teach them. So excommunication, it wasn't just a civil matter, but regarded as a sin worthy of damnation. William Wickham was not to have it all his own way. His old enemy, John of Gaunt, while chancellor, accused him of mismanagement and failing to acquire a license from the king when purchasing Moneylond. This was contrary to the Statute of Mortmain of 1279 which tried to stop too much land falling into the dead hands of the church, depriving the king of his dues. The bishop was deprived of his see and retired to Waverley Abbey. In the way of politics, John of Gaunt fell out of favour and the bishop bounced back to his lands. The new park be gradually became known as the Little Park. No mention of a surrounding ditch, but paling was erected. A lodge was built for the keeper, and he was paid two pence a day, comparing at the time with three pence for a labourer. But the status and perks attracted men of standing. Some areas were retained for agriculture, and the ridge and furrow system can still be seen. The little park has kept its original shape virtually intact to this day. William of Wickham was instrumental in bringing the bishop's estates to order and good governance, and also had a passion for building. He built and endowed New College Oxford, also founding a feeder school, Winchester College. Its pupils are known as Wickhamists to this day. Wickham had another claim to building fame. He was asked by Richard II, who was rebuilding Westminster Palace, to aid in the construction of the roof of Westminster Hall. This was built from Oaks, from Stoke Park, Alice Holt and elsewhere and was probably built, actually constructed, in Farnham Castle's sawyard and transported to London bit by bit, like a modern-day furniture package, partly by barge on the Thames. It combines a massive arch with hammer beams and is said to rival any other roof structure in Europe. He was also responsible for the amazing scissor-based roof of the bishop's camera, which is still extant. Now, I have been up in the roof there and have seen it in person. It is an amazing roof, very, very intricate in its construction. Another William, William Wainfleet, left a massive legacy to the view of the castle by building the magnificent brick tower, known ironically by many as Fox's Tower, who was, in fact, a later bishop. It was one of the first uses of brick on a large scale and can be compared to that at Tattershall Castle. Pevsner compared it favourably to Hampton Court, which was, of course, later. He must have been pleased with his Farnham Tower, as he later built a similar tower at, his, at the Palace of Isha, properly known by his name. The scale of his building had an impact on more than the view in Farnham. Money percolated into many businesses, leading to a house-building spree in the town. Many of these survive today. So many of our better timber frame buildings do date from this time. On the national scale, 
Wayne Fleet was the negotiator who made a settlement with Jack Cade when his rebels temporarily took over London. As for the park, it was not always plain sailing for the bishops and their retainers. In the year 1502-3, in the days of Richard Fox, the blind bishop, a severe storm brought down timber and leaves. The sale of some of these, however, raised the sum of four shillings and tuppence, a slight compensation. A case was heard in the Court of Common Pleas in 1511 against a group of men for breaking in the bishop's park and roads by force and arms and causing damage. The men were local to Farnham and Recklesham. The verdict is not known, but they continued to live and work locally, so came to no lasting harm. Tudor kings and queens visited Farnham on many occasions as they loved the chase. Henry left his first son, Arthur, in the care of Bishop Courtney at Farnham Castle for some time. The air was thought to be very good here. Courtney was also godfather to his second son, who became Henry VIII. Queen Mary spent some time in Farnham, hunting, hawking and coursing, and they helped to pass the time before she travelled on to Winchester to marry King Philip of Spain in the cathedral and by the bishop, of course. Elizabeth visited at least six times. On occasion, the bishops moved out completely, taking over his steward's recently extended house in West Street, whether willingly or not. During these Spanish Armada threat years, the local men were drilled as a militia. But by the law of unintended consequences, this led to a greater proficiency in poaching skills and accomplishments. The keeper and his men had a hard time maintaining order and a mixed success in bringing prosecutions and getting convictions. During this time, it became the custom for William Moore of Lowesley to take charge of the Farnham lands during a vacancy due to the death of a bishop. This was first arranged by that busy man, Lord Burley. With a change of government to the Stuarts, James came to visit within a year of his succession. Liking the setup, but deploring its state of repair, he persuaded the incumbent bishop to lease him the castle, its parks and chases. This could only run for the lifetime of the bishop. However, it would be a strong man who would defy the king's express wish. King James granted the lease for a while to John Ramsay, who had spoiled the plot by the Earl of Gowrie to kidnap the young James, and he was ever grateful to him for that. Ramsay maintained good relations with the local people, giving a deer for a feast. So I wonder if this is the origin of the venison dinner. James was usually known to prefer hunting over open ground and the chase of red deer rather than fallow deer confined to a park, but he made an exception for Farnham. The Civil War and its effect on Farnham is another story, but the dismissal of the bishops in 1647 left the parks in a vulnerable state. The castle was slighted and the land sold to private individuals. Small areas of the park were even taken over by squatters. At the Restoration, however, the bishops were returned to their sees. The first bishop, Bishop Duper, or Dupper, decided to let things alone with the parks. Perhaps at the age of 72, hunting was not for him. The following incumbent, Bishop Morley, was a different kettle of fish. He set out to restore his palace at Farnham and to retain the use of the little park, today's Farnham Park. The Great Park remains to this day as farms, although some area is now developed for housing. 
very controversially. The king gave 33 oak trees from the Alice Holt Forest for Morley's building works. However, the king, Charles II and his brother, James, used the castle as a stopping place on their way to Winchester so often that the bishop complained, the king and his brother abused my hospitality at Farnham and treated the castle as an inn, a situation known to many parents. By now, the castle was the main residence for the bishops and was in sad repair. Morley spent huge sums on the Great Hall, the Great Staircase, the Bishop's Camera and Morley's Chapel. His was the work on the South Front, which caused John Aubrey to lament, inadvisedly without any regard to the rules of architecture, making the building weak and offensive to the eye. He did, however, build the Ranger's House, needed for his two nephews, who were Rangers for the Little Park, the adjacent pleasure grounds to the ranger's house and the Elm Avenue was also a product of this time, inspired by John Evelyn's book, Silver. The busy Bishop Morley was succeeded by Peter Mews. On taking stock at Farnham, he commented, there were 150 deer in the park, several having been killed or disposed of in his last sickness and as he lay dying, meaning Morley. Within the year, he brought a suit against Bishop Morley's executor and legatee, his nephew, George Morley, claiming substantial amounts for repairs to the whole estate. Not a great deal of charity there. However, he was nothing compared to his successor, Trelawney, a man determined to wring every farthing from an unwilling town and his tenants. He paid into no local charities and only paid the poor rate for the castle after the church wardens took legal advice from council. Trelawney, immortalised in song, may have been beloved by Cornishmen, but was certainly not so popular in Farnham. Poaching continued to be a big problem, so widespread that in 1723, Parliament passed the notorious Black Act. This created 50 capital crimes, including stealing deer, robbing warrens or fish ponds, cutting down trees, pulling down hot binds or blacking one's face, hence the name the Black Act. Even the death penalty threat could not deter everyone. The wonderfully named Black Will led the keepers a merry dance. His goods and dogs confiscated by the keepers he inveigled his friends to bring a cart to the keeper's cottage to retrieve his property. One of the men took the precaution of borrowing his neighbour's hat to act as a disguise. The outcome could have been serious as each man was armed, but although some gave evidence later, none seems to have been hanged. It took a strong-minded bishop, Benjamin Hoadley, to say when it was suggested that he should restock the park, I shall not do so. The deer have done enough mischief already. This was in 1734. The park became that most 18th century of things, a landscape setting. The Avenue of Elms already started at the Poston Gate, but the park took on the aspect it wears today. Large expanses of turf interspersed with individual specimen trees and larger clumps in the Brownian manor. With the absence of deer, the park was less strictly policed, and so the locals took to walking through to various destinations. William Gilpin reported in 1775 that it was cut with unlicensed paths, and a cricket ground had so long been suffered that the people conceived the idea that they had a right to it. This was a great nuisance, 
such a scene of, of disorder with stall selling liquor just under the castle windows could not easily be endured. The bishop used the gentlest methods he could to remove the nuisance. I wonder how gentle they really were. And at length got this affected. In 1778, King George III, his wife and family came to Farnham to bring good wishes for Bishop John Thomas's 82nd birthday, the bishop having been his tutor. A visitor staying at the castle remarked on the great success of the day, which included a walk in the park, and also remarked on the consideration shown by the king and his family to his ex-tutor. However, the park continued to be mostly neglected by the bishops. This was to change in 1827, when the first full-time resident bishop took up his post, Bishop Sumner. He was to take a full part in local life and is remembered for many acts of kindness in the town. During his tenure, the army came to Aldershot in 1854, partly due to lobbying by Queen Victoria and Prince Albert. They reviewed the troops there and also visited the castle. Arriving at the Poston Gate in 1857, with many of her numerous family, she was met and welcomed by the bishop into the beautiful garden, which had been developed within the moat. An unscheduled visit three years later found the bishop absent and must have put the retainers in a bit of a tizzy. However, she ascended into the garden and expressed herself as highly gratified. Even Alfred Lord Tennyson walked across the park from Hale, remarking, the park here is delicious. What an air after Twickenham. He would not be so pleased by the air in the borough today. The local wheelwright shop owner and author, George Sturt, who lived in central Farnham, described playing in the park as a child and the many activities taking place there. Cricket was allowed back into the park in 1882, following its banning in the 1770s, and was joined by football very soon after. Growth in population and housing, the green space of the park became very important, even providing the venue for treats for the children of regiments in Aldershot. Bishops came and went, some deploring the lack of light and amenities in the castle, until 1922-3, when the decision was taken to split the diocese, Farnham being included in the new diocese of Guildford. Negotiations about the park were protracted. The church did not want the burden of running the park, suggestions including that it would come in handy for housing. Thankfully, even the Farnham authorities could not mess this one up and the park was finally conveyed to the Farnham Urban District Council in 1930. The sum involved was £10,175, part being raised by subscription. A golf course was set up as a chance for local artisans and those unable to pay regular club fees to enjoy the game. Thankfully, few other changes were made to the park, which remained as a place for people to make their own amusements. One threat that nearly scuppered the sale came when it was proposed to site the intended Farnham bypass straight across the park. Wiser counsel prevailed and the route south of the way was chosen. The park is now cared for by Waverley Rangers together with volunteers. It is discreetly managed for the benefit of wildlife and is valued by local people as the jewel in Farnham's crown. 
So finally, few hunting parks have proved as resilient and long lasting as Farnham Park and long may it survive. Thank you. This podcast has been produced by the Mr T Podcast Studio in association with the Farnham U3A World History Group. Thank you very much for listening to this talk.